We're in a series on the book of Hebrews, but we are not going to be in the book of Hebrews tonight. This is a, a sort of a semi-rabbit trail. A um, couple of things. First of all, I, uh, the passage that we're on, I feel like I need, uh, there's more there, and I am just really uh, working on that. Uh, it was a hectic week, and um, so I started thinking Friday about other places, because I've been thinking about this throughout the time we've been in Hebrews, other places where we see uh, writers address Christians as they deal with struggles, as they are struggling in their walk with Christ. And uh, so we're going to look in the book of James, James 1, 9 through 12, only four verses. It's uh, the idea of wisdom in plenty and in want. But, but the key here is, he's going to talk about the rich man and the poor man, but the key here is to understand the whole basis for this is he's talking about people who are going through trials. In the first few verses of the book of James, he says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, produce, faith produces endurance and let, his, let endurance have its perfect, let it become complete so that you will have this wisdom. He says, and if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He gives to all people generously and without rebuke. And so what's going on here is James is writing to some people who are struggling. They're struggling. They've been going through some difficulties and he's gonna address issues that oftentimes are, exacerbated, made worse by the struggling of going through trials, all right? And so I want to read to you James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. You can follow along if you have your Bible or on your phone. And it says this, let the lowly brother or sister boast in their exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we, we look at this, we see this, these verses, and it's only four. I had somebody... I got to say this. I had somebody jokingly say to me, you know, um, remember when you, when you let us out one time before, before uh, 12? And they said, I think that was four years ago. And I was like, <laughs> That's a, I find your lack of faith disturbing. That's what I felt like, okay? This is only four verses. It's not going to be super long, but these are the kind of things that we're going to look at that can change you from the inside out, that can change you, make real, lasting change in your life. First thing to remember, all of this, trials happen, struggles come, difficulties arise in our lives, and they show us how badly we need God. They also do something else. They make us more mature, and they, get, they teach us endurance, but we need wisdom in dealing with these things. And he says that early on, ask of God. And then he goes on to expound on that wisdom, on how to deal with specific examples of trials. And so in that context of tribulation and difficulty, he's going to be talking to these people. Now, James is writing to people who are scattered across the globe, and they have been uprooted, they have been scattered, they are refugees, they are immigrants, and they are, they are treated... I mean, refugees and immigrants are not treated well anywhere in a practical, practically speaking way. But in those days, it was, it was horrible. It was horrific. 
because you have a world here that's based on status. And that's what determines how people treat people in that world, especially in that culture. But it's, it's true today. It's true today also. And so they had these ideas of levels of status. And as we look, we're going to look at these real quick. As you look at these, also remember that every one of them stood way above a refugee or an immigrant. But this is the world they lived in. And I wanted to tell you this because this helps you as you interpret Scripture throughout Scripture as you read the four Gospels in the book of Acts. This can help you to understand how this world is, how the world back then was built on such uh, obvious levels of status or a a way of just defining where people stood. And they did it by clothing oftentimes. There's other ways too. And the clothes you wore depended on your status. Right? You couldn't wear certain clothes, and you could wear other clothes. And what you wore was basically spoke to everyone around you on where you stood in the pecking order. All right? So if you were, say, a free person, I mean, you, you start at the bottom with slaves, and they were given basically a tunic, and that's all they ever wore. No hat. If you were a free person you could wear what was called a freedman's cap. And it basically is saying, I'm not a slave because they're at the bottom. And this is what it would look like. Yeah, there it is. That is a freedman's cap. It is suspiciously looking like that <laughs> to me. But we'll take, take that off. That's a freedman's cap. And, and, and so you would have your tunic and you could wear that, ca- and uh, I got to say this too. We're talking about men. This is a society, this is a culture that is terrible towards women. And so we're talking about men here because they were the ones that they felt had status at all. All right? So you'd wear your freedman's hat. If you were a citizen of Rome, right, you, you were just above a freedman. A freedman just means they're free. A citizen means you have citizenship in Rome, when you, were, when you turned uh, around 14 or 15, you would get a special toga. It's called the toga virilis, which that's a pretty cool sounding name to me. But it, it's, it's the toga of manhood. That's what it literally means. It's the toga of manhood. And so they would get that at about that age. If you were an equestrian, and so you were in the next level up, you now were becoming richer, and you were becoming somebody who is basically like a high-level aristocrat, you'd wear a a very fine robe like that, but also you were allowed to wear rings, special rings on your fingers that that signified you were in the upper echelon. You were up there. Um, these, These people then, because of who they were, because of how they dressed, they demanded favoritism, partiality. You know, and if you, if you know your, your book of James, James in chapter two gets right to the point on that. He says, if this rich man comes in and you sit him in the front and this poor man comes in and you sit him in the back, you sinned against God. Which you've got to understand, that is a jaw-dropping statement to them because this is their world. And this is not something that they think is unfair. It's just the way things are. It's just, which it's, it's a, I don't, I, I hate to criticize, but it's, it's, it's just the problem they're having still in India. In India, they have castes. They've outlawed legally the caste system, but it still is in play. The bottom level people only live in certain places 
and they're only allowed to have certain jobs, usually involving trash and sewage and, and things that are, that are gross to them. And, and so that is because it's ingrained. It's ingrained. This is where Jesus Christ and the church begins to mess with the culture around them. They begin to push back on the culture around them. Let me tell you, if we ever get to the point that we are not in some way pushing back on our culture, we're in deep trouble. The church should always be the one that is pushing back in some way because no culture, no culture is in obedience to God. No culture is following after God. And so we should always be pushing back. The worst thing, I'm gonna meddle. The worst thing that could happen to the church in the United States of America is to become aligned with the government and have the, those two be in cahoots. That is the worst thing. It has never worked for the church. When, when the early church was finally declared legal, that was a great freedom for them. But not long after that, it was declared the state church. And that's caused terrible excesses, terrible problems. If you want to see how it works in, in, in bringing the church and the state together, all you got to do is look at Europe. How are the churches doing in Germany? How are the churches doing in Norway? How are the churches doing in France? How is the Anglican church doing in England, the state church of England? Right now, they say approximately 18% of English people, speaking people, go to the state church of England. It's death to the church when you do that. It's not death to the state. It's death to the church. We have to always be pushing back. If we become totally accepted, we're in deep trouble. All right, there, I meddled, and you can email me afterwards. I will, that will be fine. All right, next level is the very top level. There's very few people. It would be the senatorial class. You were able to wear a toga. You were able to wear special gold rings. And then you got to have the big purple stripes. If you've seen this, maybe sometimes if you watch movies where they have these purple stripes, um, I, I almost brought a purple sash to church this morning, and I thought I'd just wear it and go, yay, what's up? So, you know, just act like I'm something special. Because it's a crazy thing to think that people's clothes were an expression of status. It's a goofy way to live. The Romans thought they were so smart. Aren't we glad we're not like them? Yeah, exactly. They, they did it by clothes. They did it by occupation. They did it by legal standing. There was a judicial saying in Rome. It's carved into a building. There's one law for the honorable, those with honor and status, and another law for the humble. They did it with titles. Life for them was about winning titles, getting titles, becoming, becoming a hero, some sort of glory. You know, today, I, I, I read about this a while back. You can buy titles. They have titles that are for sale. You can buy a title in England. And, and, and yesterday, when I was doing the wedding, Afterwards, you know, I was going to pray before the reception. And the guy said, how should I introduce you? You know, Reverend Parson? I was like, Parson? Does anybody say that anymore? And I said, how about Bob? Just introduce me as Bob. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not that crazy about titles. But if I could get Viscount or Baron, I'd pay for it. I would get that. Uh, oh, that would be so cool, right? So you have this idea of status. And this is how it works. And here's the key. 
the highest, you, you were given partiality. You had to yield to them. They got the best of everything, no matter what the situation was. You got out of their way if they're walking in the street. Everything, you had to yield to them. You never cross social barriers. Humility was not something they thought was that important. They admired courage and excellence and persistence. They admired self-discipline, self-mastery, but humility was not something that was considered that great. You can't cross social barriers and humility is not considered something to aspire to. Now, along comes Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ and he flips it. Humility is to be aspired to. Social boundaries mean nothing. So I want you to see here, we're gonna see wisdom in trials. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, this is an interesting thing he's saying. Let the lowly person, the lowly man, the lowly woman, the lowly human being boast in their exaltation. What is their exaltation? What is it? He's going to begin to describe it, but he's, he's describing something here. He's illustrating something here that they're struggling with in the early church. They're mostly poor, but there are some rich people involved. How do they live together if the world says they cannot? In a world that demands partiality. We have, we have a, a, a bit of evidence, I, I was reading it a, a couple months ago, of a church where the pastor was a slave. And a rich man attended, a person he should be in absolute deference to attended, and he's flipped. That's what Jesus Christ does. If you're here today and you think I'm the lowliest person, you are not. You are not. So how do they live together in a world that says they can't live together? A world that demands partiality. We can't understand how huge this is. In this context of trials, Jesus is going to start saying, here's a trial for you. You're being partial to people. And it becomes especially easy in difficult times. In difficult times, it kind of becomes like an every man for himself. I have to, I have to take care of my family. I, I've used that excuse. Next time you think that, ask yourself, what exactly is my family going to lose here? Are my kids, are my grandkids going to go hungry? Are they going to sleep in the woods? Are they going to have no clothes to wear? Are their lives in danger? When we talk about taking care of our family, we need to have a little bit of perspective here. Just a little bit. Because taking care of your family means something different here than it does in Kiev, Ukraine, right? It means a whole different thing. So he says, Partiality is going to become very difficult, especially harder in, in difficult times. And also, it's hard because when you're partial to someone who is rich, oftentimes you're hoping you can get something from them. Something like that. That is something pastors really struggle with. To see someone who is obviously very rich and not pay special attention to them for what they could do for me, for the pastor, or the church. You know, it's very difficult. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard area. The other problem is, 
and this is, this is where we all can struggle, and that they struggled with, and we do too, is the problem of comparison. She has more than I do. Therefore, she is rich and poor me. I'm poor. There is a, uh, there's a, a journal called Cyber, Cyber Psychology Journal, and, and it's, it's, it's been a while now. They did a, they did a study. They did a very extensive study, um, and it's something that, it's one of those things, you ever, you ever notice some of those things that happens in, in areas of psychology or wherever, and they, they, they say something, we studied this, and this is what we found, and you're like, duh, we knew that before you studied it. You didn't have to spend all that money. But they studied Facebook, they, they studied Instagram and, and, and stuff like that, and they spent time on a bunch of them, but they honed in on a couple uh, pretty deeply. And the conclusion was, Instagram leads to depression. In an overall basis, right? And we're all like, <laughs> even more, they said, than Facebook, which can do it pretty well. And, and here's why. Because it paints a picture that is not necessarily true. This is, this is what can happen to us, all right? Maybe you're going through a really, really difficult time. You're struggling. You're, you're, you're struggling with some depression. You're struggling with some, some difficult issues in your life. Now, maybe things are going great right now, so it's hard to relate. But let me tell you, you will struggle. It's coming. Just, and you probably have, and you probably will again. And, and, and what happens? You get up in the morning, you don't want to get up. You want to lay in bed the whole time. And if you do get enough strength to get up, you just wander into the, into the living room. And, you, and, and I'm not speaking from personal experience, I promise you. <laughs> he thinks he doth protest too much. Um, so you get in there and you flip on Netflix and you binge on Ahsoka for a while. Um, and then... You haven't even gotten out of your pajamas yet, and you think, oh, I'm going to go back to bed. And you go back to bed, and you grab your phone, and you start doom scrolling, right? You start scrolling. And this is what you find. Everybody's marriage is awesome. Everybody who's not married is dating someone that's awesome. Everyone that has kids, their kids are incredible. Money is just falling out of the sky for people. Look what I did. You can do this too. They don't struggle. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. And you're in the midst of a trial. You're in the midst of a difficult situation that's hard on you. You just ate a whole gallon of ice cream watching a Star Wars show. It was butter pecan. I mean, it probably is something that you really like. And you start to get angry. You're, you're looking at this and you're going, really? Really? Why me, Lord? Why me? Why am I enduring this? What about them? I want to see Instagram posts like that. People in their pajamas at 4 o'clock in the afternoon eating ice cream, you know? And in your trial, your insidious, wicked heart will be exposed. And comparison plays out in your life. And I want you, if you could memorize this, comparison robs us of joy. Always, always. Because what happens? You compare yourself to somebody and you go, man, they got everything. I wish I, why can't I? And jealousy and envy gets in there, anger. Maybe you're looking at somebody that has way less than you and you go, ah, I'm better than them. I'm on top of them. And elitism 
and, and, and that whole thing, you can mock. It, it leaks in, and it robs you of joy from that side. It's not joyful ever. Comparison robs us of joy. So James is counseling them concerning riches and a specific, it's a specific area of trouble that they're having in a time of, of testing. And so he says to the poor man, he says, look, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, this word boast, we've talked about it a lot of times, I know, but we got to remember, this is not boast like we think of boast in our culture. We think of boast in our culture, look at me, I'm so great, yeah, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. No, what boasting is in that culture was saying, this is what I trust in. This is what I rely on. That's why, I use this a lot, I know, David looks at Goliath, and what does David boast in? He says, my right arm is so strong, it's going to be bang, zoom, to the moon. You know, no, what does he say? He says, I stand before you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. He boasted in God because David said, this is who my trust in. This is my trust. Goliath, you trust in your strength. You trust in your armor. You trust in your fighting ability. I trust in the Lord. And guess what? I'm cutting your head off today, pal. Which is kind of, I don't know how, if he said pal. I don't know if he said that. But boast, that's what it means. It's not the idea of bragging. It's the idea of thinking through, what do I stand for? Why will I prevail over this? So it's trusting. It's where I find my comfort. It's, it's where I find my rest. And it's tied up in this. I will boast all over the Psalms. I will boast in the Lord. That's why I, I, this is one of my favorite passages. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast. Let him who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you understand and know God. And what do I know about God? That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on these earths. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. God says, if you're going to boast, boast in that. Boast that you know me. You get out and you say, okay, this is difficult, but I'm a child of the king. I'm an heir to the throne in a sense. I'm an heir. I get something. I have a steadfast love in my life from Jesus Christ. He loved me so much, he died for me. And so I accepted him at one point in my life as my savior. I asked him for forgiveness of sins that, because of what he accomplished on the cross and that I could be his child. And he says, you're not just my child, you're my brother. You're my sister. That's boasting. That's all that is. I just boasted to you, but I just boasted because of God. And he says, if you're gonna boast, that's how you do it. And so to the poor woman, to the insignificant man, he says, figure out where your trust and your hope is. It lies in me. I am going to exalt you. I am going to lift you up. Someday you will be brought high up. You will be exalted. Boast in that. Rest in that. And he says, and to the rich, let him boast in his humiliation. What is he saying there? Because in those days, rich meant you were incredibly significant. And there's a tendency, and here's part of the problem, is there's a tendency to tr look to your riches when you're in difficult times to trust in your wealth. And he's saying to them, look, understand this. Your riches will not ultimately save you. Boast in that and look to God. Humiliation is this word of humbling. It's an idea of humbling through the recognition of what's going on, recognition that your riches won't bring spiritual strength to you in any way. 
And that is, that is totally contrary to the belief in that day. They believed rich people were tend, tended to be more spiritual because why would God bless them with riches if they weren't? And he says to the rich people, look, understand this, those riches that you love so much, that you trust in, they will not save you, so humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now remember, in that society, rich people humbling themselves? What an incredible thought. That's Jesus turning the world upside down. And so he says to them, this is how I want you to do it. I just want to quickly, two flaws to me in pursuing riches. And he's, James is bringing this up. And, and, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with its grass, so the flowers fall and its beauty perishes, so that also will the rich person fade away in the midst of their pleasures, in the midst of their, in the midst of their pursuits, he's saying. He's saying, you will fade in spite of your riches. It won't keep you alive eternally. It won't keep you young. We're trying it, though. Our culture's trying it. How much money can I spend to keep myself looking great and young? And as you guys can see, I've spent a lot. I am dumb. Okay. So, first thing, riches depend on favorable circumstances. All right? Riches depend on favorable circumstances. He says the sun and the scorching wind are coming. The circumstances will change, and disaster can strike. And then also the beauty and promise of riches quickly fade. They don't last long in the scheme of things. They don't last long. They're not worth trusting. We have a dogwood tree outside of our house, and when it, when it blooms, it is beautiful. It's stunning. It's just, it's just full, and the colors are incredible, and it lasts like four days. And then everything starts falling off. And I told, my, I told my wife, if we could just, like right when it's at its peak, just encase that thing, spray it with something that will just get, seal it. And she goes, those are called plastic plants, Bob. He's like, yes, that's it. <laughs> I like that idea. I also like the idea of astroturfing my lawn. I like that idea too. I don't care if it's plastic. And he says, see, he's saying here, look, it's just like that. The jogwood tree is beautiful but it doesn't last long. It doesn't, and, and, and as you get older, I can, I can tell you, not everybody here, very few maybe aren't as old as me, but it, as you get older, you understand that more and more, how quick this life has gone by. How quickly it's gone by. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing to start looking back and seeing that it's a humbling thing. And so, the beauty and promise of riches, it just quickly fades. And so he's going to conclude with this. There's a promise that supersedes all of those. The promise of an inheritance. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is a promise for those who are going, and he's talking to people going through trials. He says, I got a promise for you. I got a promise for you. You are blessed. God is with you in this. In the worst of times, only one thing matters. What is my standing with God? Who do I ultimately serve? So then what is my focus? You know, and this is, this is what James is talking about in his book. This is what Paul talks about a number of times, focus. This is what in the book of Hebrews, we're looking at this. We've already been talking about focus, focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is better 
Jesus is better than all these other, other things. He's the best. So keep your eyes on him. And here it is. We're getting this idea of focusing again. Do you, do you focus on your lack? Then you need to focus on your riches in Christ. Do you focus on material goods? Then you un- need to understand the inherent weakness of riches and trust Christ in your, in your trials. Uh, there's a famous um, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, and uh, he has this idea of the, the ABCs of emotional life. The, the, uh, the A stands for antecedent. It means the things that are happening to us, our circumstances. And the C stands for consequences, or it's the idea of the outcome. Um, this is how I respond. This is what happens when I deal with the antecedent. And he says the great illusion in our lives is that things, that, that things happen to me, my, the circumstances that happen to me, they control me. They dictate what it is I feel. So if good things happen, I get a promotion, I get a raise, it's a nice day, someone pays me a compliment, then I feel good. If something bad happens, then I feel down. I'm, in, I'm at the mercy of that. And he says, but there is a B that stands between the A and the C. And the B is belief. And he says, what you believe, you have your antecedent, the circumstances that happen in your life. What you believe will determine what the outcome is, what the C is, right? It is you're going to determine what the consequences are that come out of that. My beliefs determine the way I feel. That's why two different people can be in exactly the same situation, identical circumstances, and have polar opposite responses to it. Why? They have the same antecedent, but their B is different. And so the C changes because of that. To me, a perfect example of this is cats and dogs. Right? You got a dog. You feed your dog. This is what your dog is thinking, in case you hadn't figured this out. You feed me. You pet me. You shelter me. You care for me. You must be God. This is what your cat's thinking. You feed me. You pet me. You shelter me. You care for me. I must be God. That's what's happening. Right? That is it. Two identical situations. But the B is different. Look at, look at Scripture. It's, this is shot through Scripture. The 12 spies go into the promised land. They come back. Ten spies say, we can't do this. We can't do it. It's, it's a land of milk and honey, but the people are powerful. The cities are fortified. They're large. And, they're, and they start, they're saying the Amalekites live there. The Hittites live there. The Jebusites live there. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the websites. They're all there. They're all there, and they will crush us. They will crush us. And then what happens? Two stand up and say, no, let's go. The Lord will deliver them into our hand. Trust God. All right? Same antecedent, same circumstances, two different beliefs. And the beliefs determine the outcome. We ought to go up and take possession of the land. That's the difference. Why? Because Joshua and Caleb, those two men, they believed they were in the hand of a great God. So great giant warriors didn't scare them. Paul goes to prison. He's led to prison. He will be put on trial for his life. The death sentence, he has a possibility of a death sentence. And he says, and it, he goes, he's taken to Rome against, he 
you know, he's, they drag him, they arrest him, they take him all the way to Rome. He has all these mishaps along the way. He gets to Rome, he's under arrest. There is a Roman guard chained to him every day, all day. And Paul says, this is great. Everybody's like, what? He goes, this has turned out for good. And you think about Paul every day. They bring in a new guard and they chain him to the apostle Paul. Paul says, hey, what's up? Guy says, huh? You know, I'm nothing. He says, I got a few things I want to talk to you about. Every day, every day. So that later, and this is the Praetorian Guard. These, in the Roman army, these were the seals. These were the Green Berets. And part of what they did was this. And Paul writes to a church and says, members of the Praetorian Guard greet you. Because he led them to the Lord. And he says, this turned out for great. What? Look at antecedent. He's going to prison. He's going to jail. His life is on the line. But he believed he believed that God knew what he was doing and that he served a great God. And so what happened? He used his moments with soldiers to further the gospel of Christ. Everything hinges on that. So for application for us, this is, this is true, not just about riches. See, James is talking about one specific thing, but his overall purpose is to say, how are you going to make it through difficult times? Where's your focus? Because we are worshiping beings. We are made. We are made to give our heart to something. And we are made to trust what we give our heart to. And the problem is sometimes it's a person or a family or power or status or riches or on and on it goes. And so we have to ask ourselves, does this thing I'm depending on, is it just because things are going right? Or will this thing help me when tragedy strikes? Does this have, have the promise to, to deliver? Does this have the ability to deliver on the promise of contentment, of joy, of meaning in life? Does it enable me to live the way I was made to live? These people, they took James, what he wrote to heart, and, the, and, they, and they did it. We are, we, are standing, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Paul, at one point, he uh, explains a little bit about what he means by focus. And I love this. Uh, it's a Greek word. And, and, and it's apod... Uh, i got to make sure I pronounce it right. Apokaradokia. Apo means away from. Kara is the head. Dokia means to look. And what it means is when you put all those together, he looks away from everything else and only looks at one thing. And Paul says, that's Jesus. I only look at Jesus then what happens is all those other things have less of a pull. All those things like, Paul, this is scary. You could lose your life. Paul, what are you going to do? You know, this has happened. Paul, look at this. Paul, look at that. Paul, look at that. And he goes, no, I'm focusing on one thing. I'm focusing on Jesus. It's the idea of focusing so strongly that the things around you do not distract you. Paul says, I'm totally preoccupied with Jesus Christ. And he calls us to do the same. He says, focus on Jesus. When you leave this place, when you leave this place, think, think about what God may have for you this week. He may have you bump into someone who's struggling. 
And you can be the person that gives an uplifting word, a kind word, a loving word. He may have you bump into somebody who's incredibly annoying. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's my life. Yeah. Okay. He may have you bump into somebody who's incredibly annoying. And you know what? That person is not used to people saying, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying it, but doing this, not caring about their annoyingness and treating them respectfully in spite of it to break the mold. All right? He may have you, who knows who he may have you uh, bump into this week or spend time with. It might be somebody in your family. It might be somebody at school, at work, in your neighborhood. I don't know. But here's the thing. He wants to use you. So the idea is to say, okay, God, and I would encourage you to do this. Every, every morning this week, here's, oh, great, yeah. This is what everybody wants to hear, right? Here's homework. Um, in the morning, get up and say, God, I don't know what you have for me today. But when something comes along, help me to see it and have the courage to react. Help me to see it and have the courage to do the right thing. And here's the thing. If God doesn't bump you into somebody, okay. You were willing. That's all he wants. He wants people who are willing. But if he has you bump into somebody, you get to experience something that's incredible. And let me tell you why. Because scripturally speaking, when we deal with people, when we talk to people, when we allow the Spirit to work with us with people, we are, we are messing with eternity. We're dealing with eternity. We're not just trying to make somebody's day better. We, we're trying to make somebody's eternal life better. There's nothing you can do in this world that is greater than that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you lead us. Lord, we thank you for the book of Hebrews and the, what it has taught us so much already. And as we head into chapter 3, what we are excited about seeing. And Lord, we thank you for this time in the book of James, where James wrote down these things that he heard his brother teach so many times. And he explained them in ways that we understand and can get a grip on. Help us to show, to help us not to look down on people below us or to envy people above us, but to treat everyone the same with love and respect. And God, we pray for each one of us. I pray for each one of us that we would have an opportunity this week to affect someone's life. And God, help us to know what this incredible power that we're, we have, that we're messing with when we do that, this power to change a person's life for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.